turn to Genesis 2 this morning as we continue our study through the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11. Genesis chapter number 2. And we'll be in verses 18 through 25. How many of you in your pocket or in your purse this morning have an iPhone? How many of you are iPhone holders? Raise your hands up high, nice and proud this morning. That's the only type of phone holder you should be, in my personal opinion. It's not a Bible opinion, but it's a good personal one. I think it's got some evidence behind it. You may have an old one, a new one, a shiny one, a scratched one. But before you ever had your iPhone, before they ever produced it in a factory, probably in China, they made what's called a prototype. Now, when you and I think of prototypes, we think of those concept cars. We think prototypes are really those fancy, not real life types of pieces of technology that they make a big uh, hush, about, they make a big hubbub about, and then nothing ever really happens, right? But really a prototype is really simply defined as this. A first typical or preliminary model of something from which other forms are developed or copied. Really what that means is this, is that the phone you hold in your hand was first made, there's a first model, a prototype, that rather than coming off the factory assembly line was made probably in a lab, if you're an iPhone person, in Cupertino, California. And when they're gonna manufacture these iPhones or even manufacture the case that you might have, which by the way are magnificently overpriced in my opinion, before they manufacture those, the manufacturer Apple sends a prototype to all the people who are manufacturing. Well, the reason for that being, I mean, imagine if Tim Cook gets on the phone and is trying to describe to his manufacturer in China, you know, with just words, how to make this Apple iPhone. Can you imagine how that conversation would go? He picks up the phone, he calls long distance to China and says, hey, I want you to make our iPhone 25 because who knows what number we're on these days. He says, "Uh, by the way, I don't want it to have three cameras because three cameras is clearly enough. I want it to have four. Guy on the other line says, well, where do you want them, Mr. Cook? I don't know. One quarter of a pinky from the edge and make sure they're kind of in a grid pattern and here's where you put the flashlight and oh, by the way, make sure the edges are are really shiny and thick and make sure it's got a nice full face of glass so that way when, when people drop it, they have to buy a new one instead of getting it fixed, you know what I mean? Well, that would be kind of a tough conversation, right? Can you imagine getting building instructions that way? That's why they send the prototype. Because it's a lot easier to figure out how to construct something when you have a physical model in front of you than to try and build it off of just verbal instructions. Some of you are like, why is this pulpit here? It's because it, got forgot- it was forgotten to be moved. That's why it was there. And so if something is as important as an iPhone or not important as an iPhone needs a prototype. 
If something like an iPhone, they need to make sure that they manufacture the case and the, the future models of it exactly like they made it back in the lab in Cupertino, California. If something like that needs a prototype to make sure that it fits the specifications of the creator, don't you think something like marriage needs a prototype? Something that gives you and I an understanding of what our creator has designed the all-important institution of marriage to be. We need a prototype because I hope that your desire this morning, if you're married or if you will be married, or if you talk to somebody about marriage, I hope that our desire this morning is to build our marriages to match the design of our creator. Is there anyone here this morning that hopes that they can build their marriage to match the design of their creator? If you're not interested in it, you probably don't worry about the message because it won't interest you. But if you want to make sure that your marriage fits the prototype God gave you, we might need to listen to the prototype marriage that God gives us in Genesis chapter number two. I don't think I need to convince you this morning that our culture needs Genesis two. And it's not just our culture at large that has strayed from the design of the creator, it's all of us. Even among Christians, I can't tell you how many people I sensed or talked to in my life that they're staying in their marriages just hoping they can last until the kids leave the house. There are untold numbers of even Christian couples who may live together at the same address, but they are not together on a soul or emotional level. At best, in some marriages, they coexist in the same house and try not to get in each other's way. And at worst, they can't stand the person sleeping on the other side of the bed if they even share one at all. We need a prototype for our marriages. Because the same way that a manufacturer might need to revisit the prototype if it comes off the assembly line faulty, I think this morning that there's a possibility that there are some marriages in this room that need to revisit the prototype, that need to get back to first principles and need to make sure that their marriage is matching the design of their creator. It's this passage in Genesis 2 that gives us that prototype. And you might be here this morning, you may be widowed or, or you might be single and you might say, well, I, uh, listening to a message like this is just gonna give me a bunch of heartache and grief because I wish I had someone like that. Hold on a minute. Because what you're gonna find is Genesis 2 is about more than just human companionship. It gives you a profound picture of who your God is. And if you listen well this morning, you'll see that. Our passage, I think, breaks down in three sections. First, Moses is gonna show us man's incomplete condition, then God's miraculous provision, and then he'll end by showing how Adam and Eve are a model for us. 
Let's turn our attention to God's word in Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found and help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he the woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. First, we see in this passage in verse number 18, man's incomplete condition. It ought to strike struck you when God utters the words in verse number 18, look at it again. We're used to hearing something different. And and God says, it is not good. What are we used to hearing in Genesis 1 and 2? We're used to hearing God after he creates. It was good. It was good. It was good. I think chapter one, verse 31 or something like that. It was very good. And so Moses, as he writes this, interestingly enough, God steps back and though we're used to hearing him say how good all of his creation is, God looks at man being alone and he says, it's not good. It's not good. Now, why would God say that? Now, listen well this morning, especially if you're married or single, which I think includes all of us. Why would God say it's not good? Was it because he felt like Adam needed a social companion? Well, maybe. But by the way, Adam walked with God in the garden. And is not the presence of the Lord enough? We should ask ourselves that. So maybe God is saying that Adam didn't just need a social companion. He needed a a suitable companion for him to fulfill his mission to be fruitful and multiply. And so God says it's not good because he's not ready to fulfill his task. Which one is it? I don't know. I think it's probably both. But suffice it to say that God looks at man in his incomplete state here as a a man who, by the way, is dwelling in a perfect paradise. We talked about that last week. So here's Adam. He's out in the woods, the garden, the most perfect outdoor landscape you could possibly imagine. He has perfect fellowship with his God. He has meaningful work. And all the men this morning said, I want some of that. That's like the perfect retreat. I don't know how many guys I've said, if I could just go up to the cabin alone and just have my coffee and nature and God, I'd be happy. Well, that's exactly what 
what Adam had, but God said it wasn't good. Can I just help you this morning? Men, particularly, because men are dumb enough to think that they don't need this. You need social companionship. I'd get, thank you, Michael. I was gonna say, I needed, I, I think someone needs to agree with that. God made you to need companionship. Now, there are some people who don't need to be married. That's a different thing. But everyone, whether they're married or not, they need social companionship. And if you don't think you need it, it's because you are not in a good frame of mind to understand what you need. By the way, Adam didn't see that he needed social companionship. God was the first one who saw he needed social companionship. Maybe for some of you married folks, this will help you to have compassion, not pity, but compassion on those who've lost their spouse or those who've never been married but desired to be married, for you to recognize that, yes, we have a friend in Jesus, but it's not good for man to be alone. Pray for those who, by God's providence, are alone. Hey, be there for them, because while you have a 24-7 companion, maybe remember that they might not. They need social companionship. And that's what the local church is for, by the way. We are family. We are brothers and sisters. That title ought to mean something, especially to those who've lost their suitable companion. They need companionship, and the local church is God's means of trying to provide that. God looks down at Adam, and he sees his incomplete condition. And God says, look at verse number 18, that Adam needed a help meet for him. Now, some people mess this up and they make it one word, help meet. That's not what it says. It's two words. Help and meet or suitable. Really, what it, the way we might translate or say this today is God says, I'm going to make for Adam a suitable companion. Now, Ladies, don't misunderstand these words. The idea of being a helper here does not degrade your status. God calls himself a helper. In the, in the Hebrew, that is a military ally. It was your backup. It was your reinforcements when things were getting really raw in the battle. That was your helper. David said, the Lord is my helper. This is not a demeaning term. Adam needed a partner in crime, we could say. He needed one that was perfectly suited for him. But listen, if Adam needed one, God had to be the one to provide it. He couldn't do it himself. And I'll say this to anyone who's single this morning, that there's not a single married person I know who was the creator of their own destiny in finding their spouse. God is involved in every matchmaking story. Even if you haven't seen the movie, I think a lot of us are familiar with the lyrics from Fiddler on the Roof. You're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, you will in a second. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Colleen's singing it. Find me a fine, catch me a catch. Our society loves matchmaking. You can watch about five different shows on TLC that'll melt your brain cells that are about matchmaking. But in Genesis chapter number two, I'm telling you, we have the most beautiful matchmaking story. Because in verses 19 through 23, we see God's miraculous provision. And there's an, there's an intentional 
escalation and delay in this story. You ever feel like God's taking a little bit too long? Well, sometimes he takes a long time on purpose. That's what he's doing here. Notice the escalation. I want you to understand, God's not looking at him and being like, oh man, Adam needs a suitable companion. I wonder where I'll find one. And it's not like God parades the, the animals in front of Adam thinking, ah, you know what? The lion's not gonna work. Try the next one, Adam. No, he sits Adam down because here's the reality. Adam didn't know that he needed a companion. God knew. Hey friend, can I just remind you this morning that whatever needs are in your life, God saw what you need before you knew it. I think some of you need to hear that. I'm not just talking about marriage. God saw your needs long before you saw them. You might be in a situation, whether it's a financial crisis or or an emotional situation, and you've got something going on in your life, and you're worried and you're stressed because it just came out of nowhere. Friend, God saw long before you did. He saw before you even knew you needed it. But sometimes, listen, God waits to provide. So he sits Adam down. He says, hey, I need you to name these animals. And here's Adam. He's sitting down. He's naming them. Right? He names. It's a a show of his authority. Remember, he's a servant king, a son of God, naming these animals. And one by one by one, he names them, names them. And the way that it's phrased, and I believe it's verse number 23, or verse number, I'm going to look in my Bible. I probably should do that. The way it's phrased in verse number 20 is that it dawns on Adam. I don't know, because he's marching two little pigs and two little birds and two little cows and two doggies and two cats. And he starts seeing what God saw long before. He says, all these people have a suitable companion, but where's mine? There's a delay. There's a delay. Can I just remind you, friend, that God may see your needs immediately, but he often provides for them after a delay. If you feel like God has taken a little bit too long, join the club. Join the Adam Club. Because God does not come through as soon as you see that you need him. Sometimes... For whatever reason, God causes us to wait. And I think he does that so we can see him come through. So we can see our needs the way God sees them. So we can recognize that it wasn't us, it was his hand that provided. Friend, if God has caused a delay in your life and you're waiting on his provision and you're waiting on his intervention, just keep trusting God in the delay. He'll come through. And verses 22 through 23 show this provision from God. He performs the first surgery. Verse 22, right, Dr. Z? He puts him to sleep. Hey, anesthesiologists were around at the beginning of creation. He puts Adam to sleep. He opens up and he takes a rib out of Adam. By the way, you still have the the same amount of ribs as your wife. That's not what this means. He takes a rib out of Adam, closes up the flesh. And then it says that from that rib, he forms the woman. I love the end. I believe it's a verse 23, verse 22. God makes this woman. And and Moses pictures God 
almost like he's walking Eve down the aisle. He made her and he brought her to the man. It's like God is marching her down the aisle. Now, up to this point in the Bible, no human words have been spoken. And the first human words are recorded in verse 23. Now, if you're like me, you probably have a Bible that's, that's verse by verse. It has the numbers on the left side. When Moses wrote this scroll, if you've ever written, uh, read poetry, you know that in a, in a piece of literature, poetry is set off in a separate stanza to kind of stand out from the rest of the words. And that's how Moses would have actually written this. It would have been a separate stanza of a song that he wrote. And here is the song, the poem that Adam sings. Try that at the next wedding. Hand the mic to the groom. Here, Adam, as his wife is brought to him, he's overjoyed at God's kindness and his provision. And look at what he says in verse number 23. Do you hear the excitement? This is now bone of my bones. Uh, he, he was pretty literal there, wasn't he? he could, she got a rib of his. Flesh of my flesh. You know what Adam is saying there? He's saying there was no suitable companion, but this one, this one is suitable. And he's, he names her, by the way, exercising his headship and authority in the home. He names her woman in the Hebrew, Isha. Adam was Ish, man. Isha, and the English captures it well. Man, and he doesn't name wife man, by the way. He names her something different because although they're the same, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, can somebody witness in the 21st century, man and woman are different. Man and woman. You know what Adam is saying? He's looking at this gift of his wife that's brought to him and he's looking at her and he's saying, she's altogether like me, but altogether different. She's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, but there's something different about her. She is woman. She comes from the same materials, but she was made specially for me. You know what strikes me about this scene in verse 23 is that the first words uttered by mankind, by men, men, listen up. The first words uttered by a man in the Bible were praise for his wife. You know, it dawned on me as I was reading this, how sad is it that the first words man said are now often the last words that will ever come out of a man's mouth. Praise for his wife. Men, I think if I, I could be wrong, but the most common command to husbands in the Bible is to praise their wife. Men, when was the last time you did anything remotely close to rejoicing or singing or praising your God-given, miraculously provided wife. You know, Proverbs reflects on this so well that 
the price of a good wife is far above rubies. You can't even put a price tag on it. And that's why there ought to be sometimes, man, I don't care how verbal or not you are, if you have a heart of praise and thankfulness to God, it ought to come out of here sometimes and praise her. I think our prototype this morning, men speaks to us and challenges us to utter words of affirmation and praise more often. But verse 24 is interesting. Up to this point, Moses is telling a story and Moses, he just can't, he can't help himself. He's telling a story and it's like he stops the tape and he pauses it and he stands in front of the movie theater and says, I need to preach to you for a minute. Because the story you've just heard has a lesson for us, a lesson about marriage. And his lesson, Moses' teaching based on the story is all contained in one verse. Men and women, if you can live and embody this one verse, it'll fix and change your marriage in a way you could never have imagined. Look at verse 24. Therefore, and there's three sections here. Shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. I think this prototype teaches us two very important lessons, and listen so closely this morning. I think the first lesson Moses was trying to teach us is that the physical unity of Adam and Eve pictures the profound unity God intends for every marriage. I'll be honest with you, as I was studying this, I'm like, what on earth is this rib thing about? What, what's the rib about? You know what I mean? Like, why, why did God care to record that? It doesn't have any biological significance because we all have the same amount of ribs. And I think many of us, if we've been in church for a while, we've heard Matthew Henry's famous quote. You've probably heard this. The woman was made of of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. That's so beautiful. But I don't think it has anything to do with what God's saying. You know why God puts so much attention on the rib? And it's not just the way he constructed Eve, because remember, when Adam receives Eve, he's almost praising the rib thing. Bone of my bones. Flesh of my flesh. What God is trying to emphasize here, church family and Christians, is that God, this, this rib detail is a picture of the profound unity that should exist in every marriage between husband and wife, that, that, that though you may not be sharing a rib, praise God for that, I, I, I'm gonna jinx myself, but I've not been operated on to date and I don't intend to change that. But I think the rib here, as Adam looks at this woman and says, she's literally part of me. Part of me is in her, and part of her is part of me. We're all together the same, but we're all together different. There's this unity, but there's this complementarity between us. That is what God wants your marriage to be. It's no, it's no surprise that when Adam says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, that Moses says, therefore, a man and a wife should be one flesh. 
God may not operate on your rib, sir, but you and your wife should be so tight knit that it's like you're the same person. And Moses shows us how to achieve that profound unity. And notice, men, look at verse number 25. Who are these commands directed to? Husbands, look down. Verse 25, who is Moses talking to? Therefore, who? A man. Men, it's on you to initiate. You set the pace of unity in your home. I thank God for my wife. She'll give me an elbow or two every once in a while. She knows how to do it well. But at the end of the day, God's design is for me to set the pace in unity. It's a man's job, he says, to leave his father and mother. Now, this is interesting to me because in ancient Hebrew, Hebrew households, the woman left her house and y'all don't realize how rich we are. It was very, very common for people to live under the roof with their parents. Some of y'all are praising God. That's not your situation this morning, but that's how it was. And so people read Moses's words and like, why is Moses saying that the man should leave his father and mother and go to his wife? Because in our culture, it's exactly the opposite. Is Moses saying that all of Israel's history is completely wrong? No, listen. I wonder if he said it because he recognized that if the man and the wife were in the husband's parents' home, it was the man's job to be the one to set boundaries and form a new family unit. It's like Moses saying this, I don't care if they live under the same roof, they're a different family. And it's the husband's job to make sure that you're a new family not a sectioned off piece of another one. It's the man's job to leave his father and mother. I'll be honest with you this morning that there, there are a lot of things that ruin marriages, financial stuff, sexual sin. I've seen marriages ruined by all that, but I've also seen marriages ruined not by affairs, but by in-laws. Not by the wife, but by the mom. By the way, I'm not blaming you if you're an in-law. My in-laws are gonna be here two Sundays from now. I'm glad they're not here this week. This would be awkward. I'm not saying it's the in-law's fault because who is the initiative put on in this verse? It's not the in-law, it's the husband. If there are family issues with the in-laws, it's the husband's fault, the wife's fault. And that's exactly how it works. A wife who has a close relationship with her mother, she tells her mother everything, doesn't tell her husband a single thing. She's emotionally raw with her mother, but emotionally distant with her husband. A husband who's mama's boy, but not his wife's husband. Hey, this is some ancient wisdom for us. Somebody, somebody pay attention this morning. A man shall leave his father and mother. If you're gonna have profound unity, it's gonna take a separation. But then look at the next part of verse 24. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave. That word cleave literally means hot pursuit. Hot pursuit. You know what Moses is saying? If you want unity in your marriage, men, listen. Ladies, Listen. It's just gonna take some work. Good old fashioned work. Sweat. 
This is literally the word used sometimes for chasing. There's a little bit of sweat going on. If you want to have unity with your spouse, men, I think men do this all the time. We chase and we chase in the dating phase and we sit on the couch in the married phase. But there needs to be a chase, a cleaving, a work that takes place, a hot pursuit in so many spouses, five to 10 years in their marriage, they just give up. They check out, they sit on the bench and they'll pursue a lot of things. They'll pursue kids, They'll pursue careers, they'll pursue degrees, they'll pursue financial stability, they'll pursue hobbies, they'll pursue friendships, but they won't pursue their marriage. And it's no wonder there's no unity in the home because nobody is chasing their spouse. Men, I wonder how many of you would say, well, it feels like my wife is drifting away. Our marriage is drifting apart. Man, if you have enough sense to see that, have enough sense to chase her down. You be the one who schedules a date night. You be the one who finds babysitting. You be the one who starts a conversation and begins reconciliation and gives an apology. You be the one who says something kind when she's saying something mean. Chase her down. You know what Moses is saying? Closeness is not a product of compatibility. Our culture wants to say, the reason our marriage is all messed up is because we're not compatible. We picked the wrong person. No, friend. The person God intended you to be, to be married to is the one that you said I do to. Too late now. It's time for some work. Closest is not a product of compatibility. Closeness is a product of calories spent pursuing your spouse. You got a long time to live with that one person. It's worth every minute you can spend building unity in your marriage because one day your kids will be gone and you won't have a group project to work on. One day, and it's probably already happened for about everyone here, your sex appeal will be gone. You are no catch, my friend, probably. But when all that fades away, when your hair turns gray, when your money goes away and you're in bankruptcy, the only thing that will hold a marriage together is good old fashioned work. Work. And it's that work that produces the image in verse number 24, they shall be one flesh. There's a physical union there. You know what Moses is saying? He's saying that it wasn't just Adam and Eve who shared this mysterious physical bond. Every husband and wife through their sexual union shares a one flesh bond. And it's no wonder when you have a husband who's addicted to pornography or a wife who has a side person that this unity doesn't exist. I know this is awkward, but if the Bible talks about sex, we're gonna talk about sex. And if the Bible doesn't talk about it, you better believe I ain't gonna talk about it because it's awkward. But I just, can I just help y'all? Barring any physical complications, 
The closeness of your sexual relationship is a symptom of the closeness of your relationship. I've, I've counseled people and it's like, well, we haven't, we haven't been together for two years. Y'all, if that's where you're at, get some help. I'm not saying that someone's addicted to whatever. I'm just saying something's off in your marriage, unless there's physical problems. I, I'm just barring that. But I'm just saying that in the average marriage, if you aren't together as one flesh, that's just a symptom. That's not the problem. Well, he wants this or she wants this. No, no, no that's not the problem. The problem is your marriage is, is needing help. God designs women and men in a marriage to be together physically, to be one flesh. But there's a second lesson we learn, not just the profound unity between husband and wife. You might write this down. The first marriage gives us a picture of the last marriage. I don't know if this ever dawned on you, my friend Peter told me this one time, and I'll, I'll never forget it, that the Bible starts with a marriage, but it ends with a marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We all know that marriage is important because it's the fundamental building block of society, but marriage is also important because it's the first picture God gives us of the gospel. Now, I'll show you this in the Bible here in a minute, but I just want you to think about the account we just read. God saw Adam's need before he did. And God saw your need for the gospel long before you did. It took a while for God to fill that need through Jesus Christ, but didn't he make it happen 2,000 years ago on a cross? In the same way that Adam gave a rib, Jesus gave his life. In the same way that Adam slept, Jesus slept in that grave that day and they both awoke in resurrection and Christ purchased his bride through his own sacrifice, his death and his resurrection. Is it any mistake, friend, that the gospel writers, when they talk about Jesus being pierced, where was he pierced? In the ribs. Because the first Adam is a picture of the last Adam who purchased his bride, the church. In this, this story, we have a picture of Christ giving himself for us, and he has done his part, hasn't he, of nourishing and sacrificing and pursuing and cleaving unto you and I, hasn't he? Christ came after us when we were distant from him. He loved us. He made a covenant with us. But I wonder, friend, this morning, how you're doing on your end of that covenant. I wonder if you've said to Jesus what many might have said to a man chasing after them. I don't need no man. How many people say, I don't need Jesus. I wonder if you're submitting to Christ the way God intends for you too in your life and following his leadership. What we have in this passage, my friend, is the great prototype of marriage. And I think all of us, all of us need to revisit this and make some adjustments. I would imagine the longer you go in the manufacturing process, the more likely it is to deviate 
from the prototype. And so I'd say a special word of caution to some of those who've been married longer, that it's really easy to settle for less when you've done so for so long. Friend, fight for your marriage. Fight for it. Chase your spouse. Men, be the one to start the conversation this afternoon, would you? Would you? And I'll even say this. I'm no marriage expert, but you know, sometimes things are so tangled up, we just can't work it out between us two. And we need someone else. And I, I just want you to know that as your pastor, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. Not to take sides, but to help you if you need help in your marriage. What I want to do to close our time together, I want us to read a, a longer passage in Ephesians. And I want you, there's, there's, you would think when you're reading this passage, Jesus is talking about husbands and wives physically, and he is. But at the same time, he's talking about you and Jesus. The church as Jesus' bride, submitting to and following the leadership of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And so, really, our, our message in Genesis 2 has the same dual emphasis as Ephesians 5. And so, physical husbands, physical wives, listen to Paul's words to you this morning. But also think about you as the bride of Christ in your relationship to him as we read this passage together. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his one body, or of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ in the church. Every head bowed and every eye closed this morning.